to reflect a little upon the ways in which we might cultivate an environment of healing. There's two principal themes that run through all meditative traditions. And they're actually themes that run through all meditative traditions essentially because they are also themes that run through all of our lives. One of them is the theme of suffering or pain, and the other is the theme of liberation or freedom. Now, these two themes are not really quite as opposite or quite as separate as they may first seem to be. It is because we encounter suffering and pain in our bodies and lives and hearts and minds that we find ourselves seeking in so endlessly many different ways for freedom, for peace, for acceptance, for love, and for healing. I mean, you can imagine, you know, if, we, if you happened to be so fortunate as to live in a perfect world where you were eternally young and beautiful and healthy and everybody loved you and you had everything you ever wanted and you never got bored with anything and your wish list was entirely fulfilled, there probably wouldn't be too many thoughts about what does it mean to be free. That probably wouldn't arise so much. However, that is not for uh, perhaps the life of a very small minority that we haven't met yet. But reality keeps asking us to look at what is actually happening right now, what is happening for us, and to know, really, that to be free actually means discovering a dimension of inner vision and happiness and well-being and stability that is just not so dependent upon the circumstances of our lives or upon the changes that happen in our ever-changing body and mind. What, we're really, what is really suggested is that there is such a way of being, where our sense of who we are and, and well-being and happiness is not one that is endlessly conditioned by the changing contents of our experience. What leads us to begin to even entertain that possibility is often the encounter with suffering or pain or unhappiness in our lives. This is the birthplace, the birthplace of faith and the beginnings of understanding. If there is not just the fact that there is pain, because lots of people in this world have pain and don't necessarily, it doesn't necessarily inspire a search for enlightenment or liberation. It is not just the actuality of pain, it's the actuality of being to acknowledge pain as pain. And also the capacity to acknowledge that within suffering, there is actually something amiss. The suffering begins to be a signal that we are not actually understanding something 
very clearly. And this is actually quite a step because it is already a step of not living in a kind of way of resignation that, you know, oh, dukkha happens, you know, and being born means that I suffer and, you know, reality sucks and all those bumper stickers you see all the time that tell you about how miserable reality is. To be able to acknowledge that suffering is a sign that something is amiss is actually already expressing a sense of possibility. A sense of possibility that we are not necessarily creatures entirely determined and conditioned by circumstances. There are many, it sometimes takes us a while in our lives to get to that point of really being able to acknowledge that possibility and to be able to relate to moments of pain and suffering and unhappiness as places that inspire us to seek for freedom. Very often, before that point, there comes many moments in our lives where we do greet suffering or pain or disharmony with fear and resistance. None of us are actually immune from life. Life happens. Yet when we are divorced, from any sense of possibility or wisdom, when we do meet moments of pain or, or unhappiness or suffering in our lives, it often throws us into a place where we find ourselves either sinking in resignation and despair, or else we find ourselves shouting at the world and other people and ourselves, saying, this shouldn't be happening, this is your fault, this is my fault, that there's shame or blame. These are all kind of companions of resistance and misunderstanding. Despair and powerlessness are companions of avoidance, of denial, of trying to divorce ourselves from what is actually happening. And I think after many of these moments in our lives, we do actually come to understand that these responses of blame and resignation and avoidance are not mechanisms of healing. They don't work. They don't change anything. They don't liberate us. In fact, they add another layer of pain to what is already being experienced. The Buddha used the analogy of somebody, you know, imagine yourself walking across a field where people were practicing archery. And as you were walking across the field, perhaps not looking where you were going, or perhaps the archer wasn't looking where he was shooting, you got shot in the leg with an arrow. Well, whether you were enlightened or unenlightened, it would hurt. Same leg, same reality of pain, you would say, ouch. But the Buddha said, now what happens if after that first arrow shot you in the leg, and you saw the archer gearing up with another arrow? That's where the difference would be. Because the unenlightened person said, oh no, I know it's going to happen again. I knew how much it hurt last time. And I'm already waiting to get stuck in my leg with an arrow again, you know, and I know it's going to be a disaster. Whereas an enlightened person would either get out of the way or else not add the story. And that would be the difference between the encounters with pain that we all experience in our lives. 
when we are caught in resistance and fear, we actually find ourselves pretty stuck. In fact, we find ourselves almost married to the very people and events and circumstances we would most like to get rid of. And that's such an interesting experience. We say, I I really dislike this, I really hate this, I really want this to go away. And yet the truth is that our very resistance means that we are, it's almost like a gluing effect. We carry them with us all the time, isn't it true? We leave a situation that's been really unpleasant. Well, if there was wisdom, of course, we'd say we'd left it and move on in our lives, wouldn't we? But often instead, because of our aversion, we left the situation, the person we've had difficulty with us has completely forgotten about it, you know. They're not in the slightest bit suffering. And we're moved on, you know, hours later, days later, even weeks later, and we're still chuntering on about what this person said to us or what they did. It's like, almost like, you know, if you were going to go get on a train and you had a lot of luggage, and... You know, you stood there, the train was going, and you were still standing there holding your suitcases. It's like, you know, there is the possibility of putting them down. You know, that that could actually be possible. We wouldn't have to stand there on this moving train carrying these suitcases. This is the place we don't always understand, because actually sometimes we get so tied in our resistance that we just end up in these cycles of blame and shame Stuck. Stuck. Gampopo once said, we come to know that misfortune being the means of leading us to the Dharma is also our teacher. Healing is about letting go of suffering. The lessons of healing are often in acceptance, in forgiveness, in loving kindness, in compassion. These are often the very ingredients and the qualities that really allow us to let go. And they are the lessons we often learn most clearly when we are in the midst of difficult situations. We don't always learn those lessons of letting go in those times in our lives, of course, where our life is like a mill pond, you know. You know, it's so calm, you know, everything's working out, we're happy, we're with people we love. You know, it's very easy, isn't it, to think about letting go and acceptance and compassion in those moments. in my early years of practice, you know, I used to live in this really incredibly idyllic situation, or as idyllic as it could be in India, you know, living in the Himalayas, you know, surrounded by people who were dedicated to the Dharma. My teacher was next door, you know, these wonderful views. I didn't have to go to work. I didn't have to earn any money. I didn't have to pay any bills, you know. It was pretty, pretty ideal, you know. And I used to sit up there sometimes, you know, deepening in compassion for all living beings, you know. And it was so easy, you know. I loved everybody. It was so easy until I had to go down the mountain, you know. And you know, one day stepping on a bus and having a bus driver, you know, pinch my behind, and did I respond with compassion? Actually, I socked him in the jaw. <laughs> And I 
I thought, well, you know, that went fast, you know, all those lessons of renunciation and loving kindness. I mean, it wasn't to say that I shouldn't have talked him in the job, but I didn't do it mindfully. And I didn't do it with compassion. If I had done it mindfully and compassionate, it might have been an entirely different story. The truth is I was really peeved and I was really reactive. And those are the moments, aren't they? Those are the moments in all of our lives, not perhaps, you know, taking that form, but so many other different forms. I live with teenagers. You know, for me, this is a whole lesson in applying renunciation. And all of us have different people in our lives, so we are really asked to see, what does it mean for us to step out of suffering? What does it mean for us to be able to accept? What does generosity really mean for us? What does compassion and acceptance really mean for us? Because they are also the lessons of freedom. They are also the lessons of being able to let go. Wherever there is suffering, there is a need for healing. To be alive means that we have the capacity to feel. And to have the capacity to feel means that we are touched by the whole changing kaleidoscope of life experiences and encounters. To have the capacity feels means that we can be delighted, we can be joyful, we can be touched, we can experience sensitivity and love. But it equally means that having the capacity to feel equally means that we are touched also by grief, by loss, by by sadness, by all those, by ill will, by rejection. When we speak about healing, also I think it is also important to acknowledge that healing is not just about, you know, those truly tragic moments in life when we face loss or when someone we care for dies. Healing is about the healing of suffering and pain, and pain has many different dimensions. It's not just about tragedy, but it's also about all those places in ourselves when there's confusion, when there's self-consciousness, when there's feelings of resignation, where we feel disconnected. Those moments, actually, when we feel that there is anything that is hampering our capacity for experiencing immediacy and vitality and life, they are also actually moments of suffering. Not knowing what is authentic within ourselves, or feeling divorced from that in some way, feeling to be bound in separateness. This is actually an experience of suffering and a place where healing is invited. None of us are exempt from all of these experiences. When we begin to open to it seems sometimes the bottomless wells and nature of pain in life, we can sometimes feel overwhelmed. Waking up is sometimes painful, but it is actually less painful than living in denial and holding and contractedness. And the first step of healing is actually being able to acknowledge without resistance and, and, and denial or blame the actuality of pain. The second step of healing 
is being able to, and willing, more, willing even more than able, to step out of the mechanisms and the habits of fleeing and avoiding and forgetting, forgetting ourselves. And to turn our attention towards what is actually happening in each moment, to the actual experience of what pain is. So I think when we do this, we do actually begin to open our hearts and a little bit go beyond the boundaries of just my experience. And because we begin to turn our attention to pain without blame or, or avoidance, we begin to sense the ways in which anger and alienation and fear and, and, and sadness, that they are not just experiences that happen in my life, but they are really universal illnesses. And that they lead to suffering wherever they are found. It's very easy when we are in the midst of a difficult situation, a difficult mind state or a very difficult feeling, it's very easy to forget that because we get very tied up with the my, don't we? My loss, my pain, my dislike, my aversion, my anger. We get very tied up sometimes in the very specifics of my story. We know that it's painful and we know that we want to get out. And sometimes in that encounter with pain and our desire to get out, we think in a more also contracted way. Just about how am I going to heal my body or my story or my relationship or my grief? How am I going to bring it to an end? And sometimes in that we lose that sense of being able to encounter pain without so much my in it. Because sometimes the my in it is actually an obstacle to healing. When we do encounter pain, it does ask for wise attention, for focusing, for investigation. And that capacity for wise attention is an ingredient of healing. But wise attention is not just about finding a solution, is it? It's not just about getting rid of this particular encounter, or this particular person, or this particular set of circumstances. Part of contractedness is that we often think about just solutions. How am I going to make this end? But I don't think solutions are always the same as healing. Sometimes solutions is a kind of temporary relief from pain, but it doesn't always teach us the lessons of healing. And a wonderful, you know, example of the ways that we just, you know, look for the shortest way out of pain and then feel that we're successful as we find it. The story about Gus the polar bear in New York Zoo. And um, Gus, Gus got unwell. He started doing these repetitive laps across his pool, hour after hour, just sitting back and forth, back and forth. And the, the, park, the Central Park Zoo was deluged with calls from all over the world after word got around that Gus was neurotic. Um, they even forked out for an animal shrink. 
And I said, you know, we don't know what's going on, said the concerned zoo per person. You know, he goes back and forth, back and forth for hours at a time. And they came up with the solution, distraction. Distraction. We'll liven up his days, they said, with toys, food, and extra human interaction. Hey, it works for us, they said. But the truth is, it doesn't always work for us. There's nothing to say there's anything wrong with toys. There's nothing to say there's anything wrong with food. Nothing wrong with human interaction. But there is something amiss, amiss when we try and use that as a way of distancing ourselves from reality. The path of healing, I think, is more than just finding solutions. And it's more than just healing the specifics of a particular story or encounter. I think really understanding healing and ending suffering is much more about investigating and inquiring within ourselves of what is a healing space? What is the inner environment, the qualities within ourselves that really encourage and allow for healing? What are the qualities that would heal not only pain when it arises within ourselves, but that would equally apply to pain anywhere it arose? When we speak about nurturing a healing space, I think we are talking about and asking of ourselves a very radical change in our relationship to pain. That instead of asking just for solutions or strategies or conclusions or ways out, we are actually asking ourselves, what does it mean to be at peace with this? What does it mean to be at peace with a, a body that is breaking down? What does it mean to be at peace with a broken heart? What does it mean to be at peace with feelings of isolation? What does it mean to be at peace within a mental or emotional world where we don't know where it's going, where we don't know what it's leading to, where we feel confused? Healing doesn't necessarily mean also that something goes away or that something comes to an end. I think healing is a little bit more complex than that. It's not just about making something go away. The willingness to look at what it means to nurture a healing space, I think it does return us to this moment and the actuality of our experience in this moment the quality of our heart and mind and presence in this moment. And whatever, what the climate of all of that is. And if we look at our lives and some of the encounters we may have had or will have in our lives, we do understand that not everything has a solution. Sometimes we carry wounds or places of hurt within ourselves that have an extraordinary long history. And we can't undo events that have taken place, that have left residues of pain. We can't take back words that have been spoken or received. We can't undo actions that have been done, 
no one has yet found a solution for aging or for death or for at times even illness. The fact that something doesn't have a solution doesn't mean that we are sentenced to remaining eternally entangled and stuck in it. Just because something has a long history, it doesn't mean that it has a long future. I mean, that is really what mindfulness practice is all about, isn't it? That we don't think so much in terms, oh yes, that has such a long history, so it automatically has an equally long future. Mindfulness practice, of course, about bringing things to completion in each moment through our relationship to them. So not trying to get rid of them, not trying to make them go away, but to be at peace with what is. That is completion. That quality of not being so time-bound, you know, which is a terrible burden, you know, if you think, you know, oh, I've been angry for 40 years now, you know, I have at least 40 years to go. I mean, that's a pretty depressing thought, you know. Or, you know, if you think, you know, oh, I've been neurotic for the last 25 years, it's going to take me at least 30 years to work it out. I mean, do you feel inspired by that? You know, most of us would want to go to sleep, you know. It does require, you know, it's a, very, it's a very stuck place to be so bound in time. Nothing in Dharma teaching actually speaks about time. You know, that, oh yes, because you've had that, that length of time, you need to invest into this many years in it. You never find that in the Buddha Sutra. You know, or because, you know, you, you were born like this, you're going to die like that. You never find that. Because actually what we speak about is the immediacy of transformation that comes with mindfulness and our capacity to find completion in each moment. But that actually requires actually quite a beginner's mind because we get very stuck in that time frame concept. You know, we get very, very stuck in it. So actually to have that sense of being able to find completion in each moment, it doesn't matter if it arises again the next moment. Why should that matter? You know, life arises in the next moment. Why should it matter? But to find completion in the moment and to be able to approach areas of pain with that capacity to bring things to completion in the moment really does require an incredible quality of freshness. What in the Zen tradition is really called the beginner's mind? that we can greet each, each occurrence of aversion as if we have never seen it before. That we can greet each occurrence of jealousy or resentment or struggle as if we have never, ever encountered this before, rather than, oh no, not that again, you know, oh, I thought I'd got rid of that, you know, and I wonder why it's lingering, and oh, I'm so tired of it and exhausted by it. I mean, it's not exactly an approach that really leads to a whole lot of, ah, oh, welcome, does it? No, it's more already, aversion is already inbuilt through the expert's mind. They speak a lot about the beginner's mind in the Zen tradition, and I think it's truly a gift. A beginner's mind is not a closed mind, but actually an empty mind and a ready mind. If your mind is empty, it is always ready for anything, open to everything. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few.
This applies not only to our approach to meditation, but to these places of pain and struggle. To approach them with the beginner's mind allows for possibility. Our sense of time changes with mindfulness. So does our sense of healing. Often when we think of healing, we think we have to go back to causes in order to find completion. Mindfulness reverses that way of thinking. Mindfulness actually suggests to us that by healing the present, we heal the past. Not even that we do it. But that by healing the present, there is the healing of the past. Through understanding and changing our own relationship to pain, we actually unstick pain from its story. And nurturing a healing space, it's something that is very alive. This is actually a path rather than a destination. And I'm not sure there is even a destination to that path of healing. I don't think there is a place where we arrive and we're perfect at it. But it's a moment-to-moment practice. Why? Because life is unpredictable. You know, and no matter how much we, we arrange our world in a way where there is as much happiness and peace as possible, life will still surprise us. And our capacity to be alive as a human being is also the capacity to be able to be surprised. So events will come in the midst of happiness, in the midst of calmness. Things will fall apart. And this is actually the path of being present, to live in harmony with the reality of those moments. To have the willingness to see what it would really mean to bring openness into those places where we feel closed or fearful. What it really means to bring trust into those places where we feel anxious. What it means to bring loving kindness into those places where we feel anger or aversion. What it means to bring connection into those places where we find ourselves turning away. I mean, this path is not... It's not about having a portfolio of achievements. It's something that is alive and applied and embodied. Part of healing is actually our willingness to explore this capacity for loving kindness in a very real way. A loving kindness is not just a feeling. It is an intentional way of being present in life. It's a way of opening to all things without preferences. Loving kindness is also a practice of choosing freedom rather than suffering. Nurturing loving kindness is certainly not a passive thing. It requires a tremendous energy and commitment. Loving kindness is one ingredient of healing. Another is acceptance. I think none of us are probably strangers to the feelings of either being not able to accept another person or to the feelings of not being accepted. Mostly those experiences are extraordinarily painful. 
And those experiences of non-acceptance come with a mantra. And the mantra is often, if only. Or the other mantra, the alternative mantra of should. They're actually the two mantras of non-acceptance. And those mantras usually mean that we do a lot of thinking. The feeling of non-acceptance leads to an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of thinking. Why am I like this? I shouldn't be like this. If I was like this, I would be much happier. Why is that person like that? Why do they do that? If only they wouldn't do that, they'd be a much nicer person and I would really like them. Non-acceptance means that we have to think so much because we are trying to shift reality with our thoughts. Not very successfully most of the time. Mostly we face a great deal of frustration. Acceptance is not a surrender of the need for transformation, but it is actually the quality that allows for transformation. Because I feel it's when we let go of the mantras of if only and should, we can actually begin to discern what wise action and wise speech and wise choices are in those moments of struggle. Where is acceptance needed? Well, obviously not in those times, you know, when there's calmness and happiness and we're with people we really like and our life is going really well. Those are not the times when we really have any issues with acceptance at all. But there are many other moments, isn't it? And these are real moments. You know, we're not just talking about some good idea, but you know what happens in the dining room and you kind of find yourself sort of you know, doing your best to stay away from a particular person or you go in the di- dining rooms are wonderful places on retreats, you know, places of great mental activity and I think places of great, great moments of possibility because I think often in the dining room was where we meet all our aversions, you know, there we see everybody who does things we don't like, you know, we see all, all the things that people can do wrong, all the things that we do wrong. Where, what does acceptance mean there? What does it mean? It means, for one thing, staying connected. It means staying present rather than following the pathways of aversion. Sometimes it means seeing that the person that is in front of us is ourselves in a different form. Sometimes it means the willingness to really look at the suffering of disconnection. Sometimes it means bringing loving kindness and forgiveness. It also means trusting that we have the possibility of doing this. There's a wonderful Tibetan story about Milarepa, who is a great Tibetan yogi, who lived in a cave you know, well, there are many stories about Milarepa. But one of the stories about Milarepa was of, is of the meeting with his demons. And the story goes that one day Milarepa was out of his cave and he was gathering wood for his fire. And when he returned, he found in his cave seven demons with eyes like saucers and bodies like And they were making fires and grinding grain and performing magic tricks. 
And when Milarepa first encountered these demons, he was terribly frightened, and his first thought was, how can I get rid of them? So first he tried to get rid of them by meditating on his guru and saying certain mantras, but they was unable to subdue them. So then he thought, oh, you know, maybe they were here before me. Maybe they need some gratitude or some appreciation or thanks for sharing their space with me. So he offered to the demons a sense of loving kindness, still hoping they would go away. But three of them disappeared, and four remained. So Milamartha said, well, you know, I've got to show these demons. I'm not afraid of them. So he asserted his confidence and fearlessness. And he said, it's still the motive. He would still like them to go. And he said, oh, it's wonderful you demons came today. Come again tomorrow and we'll talk. Three more vanished, but the most vicious and the most powerful demon remained. And Milarepa realized that all of his strategies to get rid of had only been partially successful. And he decided that actually the only pathway left was to extend compassion and open-heartedness to this demon. So he said to the demon, Demon, if you would stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We will talk out our differences. And filled with loving kindness and compassion, Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon, but it couldn't consume him and vanished like a rainbow. Tibetan stories are very wonderful. Of course, what is being pointed to in this story is actually the vastness and the strength of the power of compassion and loving kindness. It also works for us. If we ask ourselves, where are our demons? In the same moment, we are asking ourselves, where do we need to let go? Where do we need to really deeply open to this? This quality of opening is not about analyzing the story of pain. A lot of times, you know, we've done that. A lot of times we've analyzed the story of pain. But actually it is staying open and connecting directly with this experience of pain and unhooking it from its story. Unhooking pain from its story. This is truly a significant part of our capacity to heal. Another of the ingredients of healing is forgiveness. Forgiving not only those who harm us, but also those moments of pain and trauma in our lives where we need to be able to forgive ourselves. Bringing forgiveness even to those very small moments where we harden our hearts or hold on to what has already gone by or replay the old and familiar songs about ourselves or others. Stephen Levine called it the unfinished symphony the way that we can carry so many of these stories without being able to let them go. The old resentment, the old moments of incompleteness. You know, so much of this cherishing of pain, and sometimes we cherish pain, you know, sometimes we, we don't want to let go of pain. 
you know, because it, it does give us a sense of, you know, this kind of perverse sense of me. You know, I'm, I'm fighting against the world. It's me against you. It's me against life. Sometimes we cherish these old unfinished symphonies, you know, these incomplete stories. It's a strange thing, isn't it? You know, how we can still hate somebody we met in first grade and still think about them. It's quite extraordinary. But we can cherish them. And sometimes our cherishing of pain in the past or in the present comes sometimes through this very inflated um, sense of perfection and enlightenment that we like to expect of others and ourselves. But of course, pain is never inflicted through perfection and enlightenment. Pain is mostly blindly inflicted through confusion and through ignorance. And that in itself is suffering. Not something that invites further pain, but that invites compassion. We learn a lot about forgiveness in relationship to ourselves in meditation. You know, those moments when we stand in judgment of ourselves, the moments when we use the words bad or wrong or hopeless or unspiritual or shouldn't, the moments of blame. Because sometimes we see that we have some choices, a glimmer of the possibility of choices in those moments. Sometimes when those words arise, the feelings arise, we see, oh yeah, there's that avenue where we can really take hold of those words, take hold of the story, and we can almost see it unfolding in front of us, can't we? You know, it's like, oh yeah, I can wrestle with it and think about it and dwell upon it and bring in all my associations. And there's this other possibility of forgiveness. I'm not solidifying with thoughts and associations, those words that arise. Not trying to get rid of them, not saying they shouldn't happen. They do happen. But perhaps there is a choice about the degree to which we solidify them. Letting go is also a significant aspect of healing. Now, letting go sometimes, I think, seems too hard because we have this image about letting go, that if we let go of something, it should go away and never return. You know, it's done. I've done that. It should never happen again. I think that's really being too hard on ourselves, and I don't think it's the reality of letting go. I think sometimes it's actually easier to be with the phrase, let be. To let something be. Because I think for us that doesn't imply so much this kind of heroic struggle, but much more a softening and acceptance to allow something the life it has in that moment, to let it be, without adding further complexity. It doesn't mean a finish, you know, where we live happily ever after, but it means completion, because we are at with it. Healing is also not a destination. It is a pathway. It is a pathway in an environment and a pathway that we cultivate in every moment where there is struggle, where there is resistance, where there is pain. A pathway of really learning the richness and the liberating power of acceptance, of forgiveness, of softening, of letting be. 
briefly have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.